Good morning. Turn in your Bibles with me, if you will, to uh, Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 26 this morning. So you can follow along in your Bibles as I read that for you this morning. Matthew chapter 9, beginning in verse 18. While he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler came and worshipped him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for twelve years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, If only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, he said, Be of good cheer, daughter. Your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. When Jesus came into the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, Make room, for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out into all that land. This morning we find ourselves back in the Gospel of Matthew, and uh, we want to look... uh, This week and next week, uh, we've been talking about the power of Jesus as the Messiah. And uh, the next couple messages will deal with Jesus' power over death. Jesus' power over death. And that's what it's all about here, about the raising of one young girl from the dead. And on the way to that miracle, Jesus encounters another miracle, where a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years was healed. That's what it's all about, raising one from the dead, and on the way, the healing of a woman with an issue of blood. If you read the other Gospels, you know that the reason of the healing interlude there, this this miracle sandwiched between the healing of the young girl, is really a delay by the sovereignty of God so that the little girl was actually dead when Jesus arrived, because the other accounts say that the funeral had already begun. And so the other writers tell us in the other Gospels, that when first approached, the man said to Jesus, my daughter is dying. She was in the process of dying. And by the time he got there, she was already dead. They had already begun the funeral. And so the, play, the Lord places this very uh, interesting interlude of a woman with an issue of blood as part of a delay to bring about even a greater miracle, that of the resurrection. And that's really the critical theme here that we're looking at. Um, we all face death sooner or later. We live in a world where it's dying. And Jesus' power over death is really the message here. It's the essential message of the text that we're looking at this morning. We live in a deteriorating world. Everything is going down. Um, Sooner or later, our lives will be touched by death personally. We're all going to die one day. Uh, pending the Lord's return, of course. And it's been that way. Uh, You know, you don't have to figure that out. Just get up in the morning and look in the mirror. And, you know, usually you've got to fix yourself up because everything's going downhill. You know, you don't look the way you looked maybe 10 years ago or 5 years ago. Your body's getting older. There's new aches and pains. We're deteriorating. And it's been that way ever since the fall of man in Genesis 3. There's been a curse on the earth. And that curse has sent the earth and all of its inhabitants kind of going downhill 
into never-ending sadness and disaster and pain and sickness and, yes, even death. In any given moment, we could be touched by death in this world. And probably most of us here this morning gathered have been touched personally. I know it started early on in my life. My mother passed away when I was three years of age. And then my dad passed away when I was seven. And I had a dear brother pass away when I was around 14. And I had another brother pass away just a couple years ago. We're all touched by death. And one day we too will die. That's just the way it is. And if we're not touched by death, we're definitely touched by some kind of terminal illness. We've all had people who've known who've had cancer or died from cancer. Maybe we've even been by the bedside of someone who is is dying of cancer or some other fatal disease. That's just the way this world is. And it's been that way ever since the fall in the garden. Is it any wonder that Jesus reacted the way he did when he came to the graveside of Lazarus? In John eleven thirty three, we read that when Jesus therefore saw her, Mary, the sister of Lazarus, weeping, and the Jews also weeping who came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. See, arriving at the funeral of Lazarus, Jesus witnessed and even experienced the sorrow over death. I believe personally that ever, whenever Jesus encountered disease or sin or death, uh, he, he was basically encountering the cross. He was looking forward to what he was going to have to pay for. And so whenever he encountered the death of someone or the sickness of someone, it gave him a glimpse of the suffering he was going to have to go through and endure. Even at the, the graveside of Lazarus, it says that Jesus wept. And Jesus, therefore, again, groaning in himself, came to the grave. I don't think Jesus was... Weeping because Lazarus had died. I think Jesus was weeping because he knew why Lazarus had died. It's a result of sin. And because of the result of sin, that just gave him uh, kind of a, a, a vision, you might say, of what was to come on the cross. And that troubled him dear, dearly. We see the presence of death all around us. And you know that it was never God's plan for sin to mar his creation. All things in this world, the Bible says, were created for the good of man. But man sinned, allowing sin to enter creation and run its course. But the Old Testament tells us that God will send one, a Messiah, who will have the power and the strength to reverse this curse. Until ultimately, as Revelation 21, 4 says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away, Revelation 21.4. See, Jesus had an, John had an incredible vision of the day when the curse is over. But who can reverse this curse? Who can destroy disease and pain and sorrow and, yes, even death? Well, the prophets predicted that there would be one who was a Messiah who would come and have the power to bring back wholeness to life. And when Jesus came into the world, he demonstrated that power. See, that's where we find ourselves in the book of Matthew. Even though some of these prophecies that were foretold in the Old Testament are yet still future. Remember, we talked about how the first time that Christ came 
to earth. He came for the express purpose of redeeming mankind, to pay the penalty of our sin. That's why he was born and lived 30-some years and died on a cross and was raised on the third day. The whole purpose of that was to redeem mankind. Well, there's going to come a second time when he'll come back. And he's going to put his feet back on this earth. And it says that at that time, he's going to reverse the curse of sin on everything we see around us, our universe, this earth, all that. And he will rule and reign. And actually, those who believe in him will rule and reign with him. All those things are coming in the future will be the glorious coming of the kingdom, and Jesus will be the king of that kingdom. And so these miracles that we read about here in Matthew are really verifying his power that he will be the one to reverse the curse and establish his kingdom. See, if he claimed to be the Son of Man, who would execute judgment on all and raise the dead, as he did in John five twenty-five to 29, then he would have to demonstrate that he had the power to do that. And he's done that through various statements throughout the, the gospel of Matthew. He shows, Matthew shows the incredible healing power that Jesus had and how important that was to verify that Christ was the Messiah. Going back, for example, to Matthew 4, verses 23 to 24. Jesus says there, Jesus went about all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all manner of sickness and all manner of disease among the people. And his fame went throughout all Syria, and they brought unto him all sick that were taken with diverse diseases and torments, and those who possessed demons, and those who were epileptics, and those who had a palsy, and he healed them all. It also says in Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 to 7, When evening came, they brought unto him many that were possessed with demons, and he cast out the spirits with his word, and healed all that were sick, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet. See, Jesus didn't heal all these people because they had the faith to be healed. See, that's what we hear today from the modern day faith healers. Well, you just didn't have enough faith. Well, it was irrelevant to Jesus whether these people had faith or not. He healed people with faith. He healed people without faith because the purpose of his healings were to show that there was no limit to his ability to heal disease. That was the purpose. It wasn't to show these people had faith. In Matthew chapter 9, verse 35, it says, Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in the synagogues and preaching the gospel of the kingdom and healing every sickness and every disease among the people. <clears throat> Matthew eleven five: the blind receive their sight, it says, and the lame walk and the lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have the gospel preached to them. So it was demonstrated clearly through the gospel of Matthew that Jesus demonstrated that he was God's Messiah, the king of all creation. And that's what Matthew wants us to understand. The whole entirety of the book of Matthew presents Jesus Christ as the king of a coming kingdom. He told us that through his ancestry, that he had the lineage of a king. Matthew told us that about his arrival, that he had the birth of a king. He was virgin-born son. Matthew tells us about his adoration. Other kings came and bowed down to him. 
at his birth in his young years. Told us about his anticipation. The Old Testament prophecies were fulfilled in his birth. Matthew even told us about his glorious announcer, John the Baptist. It told us about his affirmation, where the Father spoke at his baptized, at Jesus' baptism and said, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Told us about his advantage when he conquered Satan in temptation. He used the word of God to defeat Satan in the wilderness. Matthew even tells us about his activity, the healing, the preaching. Told us about his authority in Sermon on the Mount in chapters 5 through 7. He taught as one having authority, not as the scribes and the Pharisees. And he also tells us about his authentication, the miraculous power that he had. That's what we're at. That's where we're at in the book of Matthew. We're seeing his power as the coming king. Verified through all the miracles. Through chapters 8 and 9, we see miracles of Jesus. And Matthew, basically, as we kind of review this, breaks them up into three groups of three miracles. Talk a little bit here about the setting in Matthew. Chapters 8 and 9, basically, we see three groups of three miracles each. The first group in chapter 8, verses 2 to 15, deal with disease. The second group in chapter 8, verse 23 through 9, chapter 9, 17, deals with disorder in physical, spiritual, and moral realms. And now we find ourselves in the third group, Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 34, and it deals with death. And this serves kind of as a climax to these three sets of miracles. The last group also includes the miracles of giving sight to the blind and speech to the dumb. And what I, I really believe that the context is showing is that Jesus can not only raise a literal dead body from the grave, but he can also give life to a dead tongue someone couldn't speak it can also he can also has the power to give life to dead eyes who couldn't see it's incredible incredible power found in the lord the question is can jesus overcome death gb harding a canadian scientist one time said when i looked at religion i had two questions First of all, question number one, has anybody ever conquered death? Number two, if they did, did they make a way for me to conquer it too? And Hardy goes on, he says, I checked the tomb of Buddha. Guess what? It was occupied. I checked the tomb of Confucius. You guessed it. It was occupied. I checked the tomb of Muhammad. And it was occupied. I came to the tomb of Jesus. And it was what? empty and he said to himself there is one who conquered death but he also asked a second question did he wake up, make a way for me to conquer death as well and he gives testimonies he opened his bible to john 14 verse 19 and it says because i live what you also shall live he concluded that there was one who would conquer who could conquer death and there was one who opened the way for him to follow that. See, that's the question. Can you conquer death, Jesus? Are you the one who can reverse the curse? 
Do you, as it says in Revelation 1.18, really hold in your hands the keys to death and hell? If you are, Jesus, if you truly are the one who has the power to do this, demonstrate it. And that same Jesus who stood at the grave of Jesus and wept with the grave of Lazarus and wept with Mary was the same one who said to Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, he will live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? So let's make a few basic <coughs> observations as we approach our text this morning. Matthew chapter 9, verse 18. Jesus shows his power over death, clearly demonstrated here. He raises a girl from the dead, someone who had died. However, prior to that, he healed a woman with an issue of blood. And it's really, as you look at the text, it's a miracle within a miracle. Jesus starts with the story of one miracle, and then he sandwiches in between that miracle another miracle. As you read the other gospel accounts, that that second miracle, the, the woman with the issue of blood, really provides the delay that was necessary for the death of the young girl to occur in the first place. And therefore, allowed everyone to see his power over death as he raised that girl from the dead. I want you to see this morning the power of Christ. But at the same time, I want you to not miss. I want you to observe with me how Jesus dealt with those around him. How Jesus dealt with those around him. He had a tenderness, a gentleness. And we see this against the, the backdrop of his power and his majesty. And as we look at how Jesus dealt with others, we can also see a pattern for us to follow, how we should deal with others. So it's very practical here this morning. And so we're going to use a, an outline that basically deals with this morning how Jesus dealt with people as we walk through this account together. First of all, let's look at verse 18. First point in our outline, Jesus was accessible. Verse 18, for while he spoke these things unto them, behold, there came a certain ruler. Now, whenever you approach the Bible, you want to be asking questions. You want to be asking questions about the text. It says, while he spoke these things, something should pop in your head to say, what things? And then it says, unto them. Well, who is he talking about? Unto whom? And we have to ask those questions to make sure that we understand what truly is being said here. You remember what was going on here. Just quickly to review, Jesus had just cast out demons out of the demoniacs at Gadara. And he sent them into a herd of swine and they went running over the cliffs and, and died. And he calmed the sea and the wind. And when they came back to Capernaum, the little village on the northernmost part of the Sea of Galilee, he entered the house where he stayed frequently, probably most likely the house of Peter. And the disciples of John the Baptist came amidst all these miracles and said, Why aren't your disciples fasting like we and the Pharisees are? And so now, as Jesus was interacting with the Pharisees and the disciples of John the Baptist, at that moment, it says, a certain ruler came to him. 
Behold, a certain ruler came to him. See, what that shows me is Jesus was accessible. He wasn't some, you know, religious guru somewhere in an ivory tower that had guards that kept everybody away. He didn't live in a monastery. People didn't have to work their way up the hierarchy of Jesus' infrastructure before they could get a meeting with Jesus. Rather, he moved among the common people. Good lesson for us today in ministry. Sometimes people get maybe a (laughs) bigger thoughts of themselves than they ought to. Sometimes you go to certain events, you go to certain places, and it's really hard to talk to anybody because they're not accessible. Jesus was very accessible. In John 1.14, when God says that he came to earth, it says Jesus pitched his tent with men. He came down among the common people and said, hey, I'm going to hang out here with you for a while. It was in the streets of the villages. He walked in the dusty roads. He was in the synagogues. He was in the homes of others. One day, even in Matthew chapter 19, verses 13 to 15, we see a lot of parents came to him with their little children. And the disciples saw all these kids around Jesus. And they said, hey, wait a minute. Send these kids away. We don't have time for this. That was kind of their attitude. And Jesus said, no. Permit these little children to come to me, for such is the kingdom. And he gathered the little ones unto himself. Jesus was accessible not only to adults, beloved, but he was also accessible to little children as well. Almost everywhere he moved, there was a crowd of people around him. On another occasion in Matthew 15, verse 32, he says, I have compassion on the multitude because they continue with me now three days. I mean, everywhere Jesus went, there was a multitude. In that case, three days, he was constantly surrounded by a multitude of people. People came to ask him questions. I mean, think about it, wouldn't you, if you saw the miraculous things that were happening? People came to him with their problems. See, he was the one who had all the answers. He was counseling, he was healing, he was teaching in the midst of the people for three solid days. Beloved, some of us, you know, we we come and, and maybe we're in a crowd of people for 30, 40 minutes sometimes. And for some of us, that's very unnerving. (laughs) You know, we like our space. Jesus was constantly surrounded by hordes of people pressing in against him. At times, he even had to retreat to the Mount of Olives, it says, to commune with his father because there was no time. And there were times even when he healed somebody or he did a miracle and then he would tell the people, please don't tell anybody. Because that would only encourage more people. See, there was Jesus, the creator of the universe, the king of kings, the Lord of lords, walking around the rolling hills of Galilee with these little children running near him, people stopping and talking to him. And it didn't matter whether he was in the villages, the boat on the water, or even the crowded streets of Jerusalem. He was always surrounded by people. See, that tells us that Jesus was accessible. Because Jesus was God displaying himself. And at this particular time, there's two people in the crowd. 
There's two people in our text this morning. One is a ruler. The other is a poor sick lady. One was respected and most likely well off. The other was definitely ostracized from society. And probably down and out. Can you imagine the assortment of people that would have been in a crowd like that surrounding Christ? There would have been everything from Pharisees, self-righteous Pharisees trying to condemn him, to people who were trying to analyze him, to people who were sick, hurting, poor, downcast, trying to have their needs met. But he was always accessible to the crowds. Secondly, in verse 18, we see not only was Jesus accessible to the crowds, but he was available to the individual. See, Jesus was not only accessible in that you could get to him, he was available in that he would come to you. See, the marvelous reality is that Jesus would respond to a particular person by being available to him. Let's look at the request here. It says, and behold, a ruler came. Behold. In other words, it kind of, whenever you see that word behold in Scripture, it's talking about something remarkable is about to happen. According to Mark and Luke, this ruler was uh, Jairus. He was one of the, the rulers of the synagogue and possibly even the chief elder of the local synagogue. And if so, he was probably the number one representative of the religious establishment in Jesus' time in Capernaum, the city in which he was staying. Now, synagogues back then and today even are ruled by elders who serve as spiritual leaders. And they're responsible for the administration of the synagogue and coordinating public worship services, all these kind of things. And usually they're men of great influence. And these elders amongst themselves would would basically appoint from amongst themselves a presiding ruler. Well, that's who we're talking about this morning. He is the leader of the elders in the local synagogue. Now, if you stop and think about it, what's wrong with this picture? This man is a ruler, a lead elder, in a religious establishment that basically is set full on against Christ fighting him tooth and nail through his ministry because they felt threatened. They felt Christ was a a threat to their religious establishment. Jairus would have been under a lot of peer pressure to be a faithful Jewish religionist. And for that reason, he came to Jesus. But he doesn't come as you might expect him. He doesn't come and say, hey, I'm the chief elder at the local synagogue, and I'd like to speak to you privately about some issues. He didn't do that. His position was one of a leader. But look at how he came. It says in verse 18 that he worshipped him. The word worship in the ancient Greek describes a person who is prostrate before another, often kissing the feet of another. Thirteen times it's used in the Gospel of Matthew because Matthew wants to show that Christ 
deserves, because he is the king, people to come to him and worship him. That's the natural response of someone before a king is to worship them. But what would have made this religious leader bow down before Jesus in a rather public setting? Well, he shows us not only his position and his prostration, his worship, but he also, look at his pleading in verse 18. It says, saying, here's what he said, My daughter is even now dead, but come and lay your hand upon her and she shall live. When you read the other accounts in Mark and Luke, they fill in the details. It tells us that when the leader initially spoke to Jesus, his daughter was in the process of dying. But Matthew condenses it all and just gives us an overview and basically reports that she has already died. Do you know why Jairus came to Jesus? Do you know why he came and he didn't care about the social pressure, what people would think of his own religious establishment? He came because his daughter was dying. And he no doubt saw the power of Christ to heal people. And there were no resources within his religious system to help him in any way. And I believe that somehow God had already been working in his heart because his faith expressed not a taint of doubt. And he knew that when Jesus touched his daughter, that she would live. You see him here, this proud religious leader, swallow his pride. He turned his back on his social pressure, and said goodbye to his own religious establishment. And he came publicly and he fell face first before the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Why would he be willing to do that? Well, first of all, I think he did that because he had a a deep need. He came pleading out of a deep need. See, that's why we come to Christ. That's why people come to Christ, because they have a need. If you don't recognize your need for him, you're not going to come to him. If you have everything within yourself to think that you are self-righteous, why would you need a savior? It's those who know that they're not righteous. Those that know that they're sinful people. Those are the people that will come to Christ because they have a need. They have a need of a savior. Sometimes when you're sharing your faith, some people will say, I have no need for that. I don't need Jesus in my life. I don't need Christ. Sometimes I like to reply to them, if you don't need Christ, if you don't sense you need Christ right now, then I'm going to pray that you'll know pain, that you'll know desperation, that you'll know the loss of all your resources. I'm going to pray that you'll come to your the end of your rope so that you will recognize that you were in desperate need of Christ and his saving gospel. Because everything we see around us, beloved, will be lost. Everything will be burned up. Two things that are eternal, the soul of man and the word of God. That's it. So we need to recognize our need for Christ. 
I don't even think this man's, this leader's motive was pure when he came to Christ. He didn't come to Christ because he loved Christ. He didn't come because he loved Jesus. He came because he was hurting because of emotional pain because he saw his daughter dying. His heart was crushed with grief. It was a foxhole cry out to God, help me. See, it's the people with a need that come to Christ. That's why the gospel is is so often received by the poor, the sick, the weak, and the prisoners. See, we would do well and when we present the gospel to present such a gospel. So many times we present the gospel as if it's something that you can add to your life. You just keep on living your life the way you do and you just put Jesus on the top, kind of like a cherry on top of a Sunday, and you just continue on. Beloved, that's not the gospel. The gospel of Christ says that, no, we have to come to a point where we're willing to deny ourselves. That we're willing to give up everything to follow him. Because we realize our desperate need of a savior. We come to our wits end with our sin. We realize we can't deal with it on our own. That one day we'll stand before a holy God. And we will be judged And our own righteousness, any that we may have, will be burned up. It won't stand the test of God's judgment. Because, remember, beloved, sin is not what we do. Sin is who we are. Sin is what we are. So we're all really in desperate need because the Bible says there's none righteous, no, not one. That all have fallen short. That all need a Savior. My prayer this morning is that you'll cry out from your deep need to Jesus. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Well, he not only had a deep need, but he also had a determined faith. And even though this faith was inadequate, and maybe its motive was a little bit selfish, I love Jesus because he's still available to him. He really did believe that Jesus had the power to heal his daughter and even raise her from the dead if if she died. And that's an incredible expression of faith. When you compare that faith to the uh, faith of the centurion in Matthew chapter 8 that we looked at, whose servant was afflicted with paralysis. It says there, Matthew 8, verse 8 and 10, it says, Speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. And when Jesus heard it, he marveled. And he said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found so great faith, no, not in Israel. That man had enough faith to believe that Jesus could heal his servant with a word. Didn't even need to come. Jesus says it's the greatest example of faith he'd seen in Israel. Then what kind of faith was that which believed Jesus could raise a dead person to life? The faith of the synagogue official may have even surpassed that of the centurion. Or you compare it to Martha's faith. Martha said to Jesus, if you had only been there in John eleven twenty one, when my brother was sick, you could have done something, but now he's dead and it's too late. She had her doubts about the resurrection power of Jesus. 
I believe that the synagogue official had the faith to be redeemed. I believe that he entered the kingdom of God. And the Lord even throws in another little miracle here that's really kind of incredible. Jesus is in this big crowd. <coughs> and another miracle happens. And you know what? When we read this, Jesus isn't really even involved in the miracle. It's almost involuntary. Because he says, I felt power go out of me. And he looks around and he says, who is this? And God did that in his sovereignty to delay the whole move to the house of the synagogue official to make sure that the girl was dead. How did Jesus respond to his need and his faith? Look at verse 19. It tells us. We see the response of Jesus. It says, and Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. The Greek literally says, Jesus up and followed him. Up and followed him. I mean, Jesus didn't stop and say, well, you know, I got something going on here. This kind of an important meeting um, with this multitude. <laughs> and I don't want to miss the chance to minister here because there's a lot of people here that are sick that, that need my help as well. He didn't do that. The Bible says he rose up and he followed the religious leader, the synagogue leader. See, there are times when there are tremendous needs in an individual's life. There are times this morning, you're sitting here this morning, you may have an incredible need in your life as an individual that nobody else knows about. But you know what? Jesus knows about it. And Jesus was always sensitive to that. If you bring your need to Jesus, John 6.37 says, He that comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. See, Jesus was accessible to the crowd, but he was also available to the individual. He was available to the individual. Well, verse 20 and 21 says that Jesus was also touchable. He was not only accessible and available, he was touchable. After Jesus had left to go with Jairus and he was being followed by his disciples and it says all the multitude followed and they followed him everywhere he went, there came a woman desperately searching to be healed. It says, and behold, a woman who had been diseased with the issue of blood 12 years came behind him and touched the hem of his garment. See, in that culture in Jesus' time, it wasn't appropriate for women to go around touching anyone, let alone men, let alone grabbing them. That's literally what she did. It's not like this woman was laying by the road and saw Jesus going by and just kind of, I'll just get a quick touch. No, she literally grabbed a hold of one of the, the tassels on his robe. That's, that word touch is the same word that's used in John 20 when Mary was clinging to Jesus after finding that he had risen from the dead. And in effect, Jesus said, you know what? You can't hang on me. I have to go back to heaven. Stop hanging on me. Same word. So literally, this woman reached out and she grabbed onto the, the, the garment of Jesus in desperation. Because she was, she'd had it. 
She dealt with this issue for 12 years. Well, what was this issue? What was this issue of blood, as the Bible says? What was her illness? It could have been caused from a fibroid tumor or something like that. We don't know. But for 12 years, the woman could not stop bleeding. And I'm sure, other than just being physically weak, she was probably just emotionally beaten down. Because, see, in their culture, during that time of the menstrual cycle and, and the woman's bleeding, you, you thought of as unclean. The Bible speaks of that. And so she would have been considered perpetually unclean for 12 years. Luke said that she could not be cured. He was a doctor. He ought to know. In Luke 8, 43, Mark said that she had basically spent all her money on the doctors to try to find out what was wrong. So they kind of took advantage of her, and that was even worse. It's interesting to me that Luke didn't bring that up, that <laughs> she spent all this money on doctors. Being a doctor himself, he probably didn't want to raise that issue. But see, from the Jewish point of view, you couldn't imagine anything worse than being a woman with the issue of blood for 12 years it was humiliating. It was perhaps even worse than leprosy. They even had certain cures in the Talmud that were kind of superstitious to deal with a woman's issue of blood. And some were to take tonics and herbal things and things like that. And some were just plain weird one was that you had to carry the ashes of an ostrich egg in a linen bag in the summer and transfer them to a cotton bag in the winter. And maybe that would help you with your issue. Another one, which is really weird, said that you had to carry around on your person a barley corn that was found in the manure of a white female donkey. That's really weird. And so they had all these superstitious cures for this thing, trying to deal with this problem. But it was humiliating beyond anything else. Because in Leviticus chapter 15, it tells us how they looked upon this time in a woman's life. Verses 25 to 27 of Leviticus 15 says, And if a woman have an issue of blood many days out of the time of her separation, or if it run beyond the time of her separation, all the days of the issue of her uncleanness shall be as the days of her separation. She shall be unclean. In other words, you just keep bleeding while well, you're going to be unclean during that time. Every bed you lie upon on all those days shall be unclean. Anything that you sit upon shall be unclean. Anything that touches you will be unclean. You have to wash your clothes and all this stuff. Leviticus says that a woman with an issue of blood was ceremonially, ceremonially unclean. Incredible. And so here's this poor woman for 12 years. She was most likely excommunicated from her synagogue because she was unclean. They couldn't let her in. She was probably most likely divorced by her husband and even her family, ostracized from all kinds of human relationships, left all by herself in a weakened physical, emotional mess she lived this way for 12 years in isolation i mean can you imagine do you see why she was so desperate to search out jesus to search out the touch of christ she had a deep need 
She also had a faith that believed in him. She probably saw from afar the healings that took place in the ministry of Christ. And in her desperate need, she was willing to come public and face the humiliation of the crowds in order to touch Christ. See, so many times we we hear people who want to come to Christ, but they don't want to do it publicly. They don't want to make a big deal about it. They just want to add Jesus to what they're doing. See, that's not desperation. That's an improper view of your standing before God. Because their their view is really that I'm okay, but if I add Jesus to my life, I'll be even more okay. And the Bible says, no, that we're lost in our trespasses and sin. That we're dead in our trespasses and sin. You have to understand that. We have to give that message to other people. That's why the gospel is a hard message to share. It's not a happy message. I mean, the end result is that you can have forgiveness, but the initial confrontation of sin and God's law in people's lives is not a happy message. Nor should it be. Because it's a message that's meant to drive us to our knees in utter desperation to cry out to the Savior, be merciful to me, a sinner. See, it's when you get to that point of true desperation. You don't care who's around. You don't care who's watching. You don't care about family and friends and your religious ties. You don't care about what the public's going to say, what your buddies are going to say if you if you make this commitment. You don't care anymore because you're desperate for the forgiveness of Christ. You're desperate in your pain and your sin and your guilt to have that relieved through Christ says here, the woman touched the hem. See, back in that time in the Old Testament, it tells us the Israelites were instructed to make <coughs> garments that on the fringe of their garment, they'd have four little blue tassels. And these four little blue tassels symbolized the law of God. And what they did is they, they provided a couple things. First of all, they, they provided the identification of a Jewish person as a member of God's chosen people. Regardless of where they were in the world, you would see that. They still practice this today. They, 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 they wear certain things that designate them. And it also served a purpose when they took off their clothes. And when they put their clothes on, they saw those tassels. They were reminded that they belonged to God. We do that today in our society. Some people wear a, a gold cross, silver cross, or a fish symbol. Sometimes we put the symbols on our cars or things like that. Personally, I don't put a fish symbol on my car because I don't want my driving to be affiliated with Christ. <laughs> so nothing worse than being pulled over and having a fish symbol on your car. So we, we don't do the fish symbol, but I, I've done pretty good. I haven't, haven't gotten many uh, tickets in the last several years at all. So praise God. But the tassels on Christ's clothing probably swung a little bit as he as he moved through the crowd. And reaching out for one of them, this woman just kept saying to herself, If I can just touch his garment, 
I'll be made well. If I can just touch it. And as she struggled through the crowd, she finally grabbed a hold of one of the tassels. And it says instantly she was healed. Instantly she was healed. Mark says that when the Lord felt power involuntarily pass from him, it says the Lord turned around and and said, Who touched my clothes? I mean, can, can, can you imagine this? Hordes of people following Christ, crowds pressing up against him. He's walking down this road with the, following the, the ruler to his house to help his daughter. And the disciples are there and crowds are pressing in. And this woman in her desperation reaches out and just grabs a hold of one of the tassels. Believing in her mind if she just touched it. Somehow she'd be saved because she was, had this superstitious mentality. And all of a sudden, it's like time stops and Jesus stops dead in his tracks because he felt the power involuntarily go out from him. And he turned around. And he says, who touched my clothes? <laughs> dead silence. It's kind of like that commercial. Want to get away? (laughs) That's kind of what we're talking about here. It's one of those moments. And here's this woman. Exposed. It's as if time itself stopped. And for that moment, it seemed as if only the woman and her great need existed. I mean, the the disciples couldn't even understand Jesus' sensitivity to a seeking heart. In Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, it records the disciples basically answering Jesus' question. Who touched my clothes? Are you kidding me? Who touched you? (laughs) Look at all the people around you. You want us to tell you who touched you? Are you crazy? When Jesus looked around, it says that he found the woman who had faith that he could heal her. I want you to see here this morning, her faith was not a mature faith. It was somewhat a superstitious faith, to be honest. But you know what? The Lord responded to it anyway. The Bible says even faith as small as a mustard seed When we were in Israel, we saw a mustard seed. You can find them in the store. They're very small. Even faith as small as a mustard seed will move a mountain. See, the Lord can take an inadequate faith like Jairus's, which was rather somewhat selfish. He was just concerned about his daughter. Or he can even take a superstitious faith like this woman's and turn that faith into a saving faith. See, could Jesus could have kept on going. He could have just kept on walking. But see, then this miracle would not have proved its point. It wouldn't have served its purpose. It was purpose there in the sovereignty of God to delay Jesus so the daughter would die. So he wasn't just dealing with a, 
a sick girl anymore, but he was dealing with a dead corpse when he arrived at the leader's house. But I think he also stopped to confront this woman in a loving way. Because if you think of, if Jesus kept on going, what would this woman have thought? She would have still been stuck in her superstitious belief that if I would have just touched his, I just touched him and I was healed. And so Jesus had to stop and confirm to her and draw her into a full relationship with him. I don't really believe that she was healed by her faith. It had nothing to do with it. I think she was healed by the sovereignty of God. He chose to heal her. See, so many times today, we forget that. People are sick, and they're praying for God to heal them, and, you know, he doesn't do it. And the heart grows bitter, because they think somehow that it's their right to be healed. No, it's not. God heals whom he desires to be healed. And if you're not healed and you're dealing with a disease, then God has a purpose for you to have that disease. Could be a testimony of his grace in your life. Could be a testimony of his love. Faith wasn't always present in the people that Jesus healed. When Jesus said, your faith has made you well, he didn't use the usual word for healing. He used the, the, the Greek word sozo, which can mean save in terms of redemption. Jesus did miracles of healing everywhere, even to those people who had no faith. But he saved only those who had faith in him. See, the issue here is not the healing of her body. The issue is the healing, the saving of her soul. So there was a redemptive element in her faith. And so rather than leaving in her soup, leaving her in her superstitious thinking about his healing power, Jesus drew her out and literally saved her soul. The ruler had an inadequate motive of selfishness. The woman had an inadequate faith involving superstition. And yet Jesus redeemed them both. In Mark chapter 9, verse 24, there's described a man who said this, Lord, I believe, but please help my unbelief. Some of you may be here this morning thinking, well, okay, a lot of this is making sense, but I don't have every I dotted and every T crossed, so I don't want to make a commitment to Christ. Ask Jesus to help your unbelief. Even if you cry out to him, be merciful to me, a sinner, he'll answer that prayer. Jesus always knew the difference between the the fickle mob and the faithful soul. See, there was hundreds, possibly thousands of people around Christ at this time. And yet he picked one out that he knew had faith in him. Jesus was accessible. He was available. He was touchable. But I think there are two things that you have to have to bring you to Christ. Two things that your soul must possess before you can taste of the Savior's love and grace and forgiveness and mercy. One is a deep need 
Another is a great faith. You have to have a sense of desperation over your sinful condition. And you have to have a faith, even if it's a misguided faith. You have to have somewhat of a faith that Jesus is the chosen one of God. He is the one who came and died in your place, in my place, for my sin. Let me ask you this morning, do you believe in Christ? Have you looked at your life and seen that it's less than what it should be? You looked at your life and realized that it's not full, it's not abundant, it's not complete. You look at your life and you deal with sin. You ever told a lie, you're a liar. If you've ever taken anything, irrespective of its value, you're a thief. Value, it's, it, you're a thief. If you've ever thought a lustful th- thought in your mind, the Bible says you might as well have been an adulterer. If you've ever taken God's name in vain, you've broken the law of God. There's going to come a day, beloved, when you will stand before a holy God and only one thing will stand. What you did with Christ. Christ came, he lived, he died, he was resurrected. And he made it possible for you to have a full, abundant life in him, with God. But you have to come to him. It's not forced upon you. You have to look at your condition and be desperate over it. Jesus is touchable. He's available. He's accessible. He is God. He's operating in the world of man through his spirit. And I want to tell you this morning, he's able to transform your life. Why don't you cry out to him this morning? Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you that you did come into this world through your son and you pitched your tent among us. And Lord, we thank you that you just didn't get everything started and and then kind of go off and just let things run. But Lord, you're, you're intimately acquainted with all our ways. Someday, the Bible says that you will return to reverse even the curse on this universe, on this earth. Someday there'll be no more pain, there'll be no more sin, there'll be no more disease or sorrow or tears or death. Lord, we thank you for your power to raise us from the miry clay to new life in Christ. And we thank you that this morning, even that we've seen how you worked with people, that you were accessible, that you were available, that you were touchable. I pray that we would model that in our relationships with others, that we would never think as believers that we should keep people a distance from us, Lord, they're the only light, they're the only salt that they may ever see is how we live our lives before them. Those of us who have come to realize our deep need and that we've come to faith with you and in you, we know that we've been redeemed, we've been saved. We pray that we would be bold with the gospel. And Lord, we also pray for those who have their needs unmet, those who sense pain and hurt, and haven't yet moved in faith toward you, we pray that you would draw them onto yourself, that you would give them that same sense of desperation, bring them to a point where they realize there's nowhere else to turn. May you take their simple faith and bring it into full bloom of saving faith. Lord, we thank you for that. 
We pray that you would do it in the name of your Son, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.